0: As we pick up the story of God's delivery of David from being replaced as king by his rebellious son, Absalom, we are personally confronted by a cast of characters whose hearts are revealed through all the details of this story. David has finally risen from the numbing and neutralizing grief that he felt for his son Absalom and his death. <clears throat> and just in time, too, because now David has the arduous task of trying to pull together the nation, which, as we're going to see, is a monumental task. His own tribe, Judah, has split in their allegiance some to Absalom and some to David, how in the world would he be able to mend wounds, deep wounds, without either scaring the defeated followers of Absalom or showing way too much partiality in favor to those who had stuck with him? And how would all the other tribes now fit in? Would they fight each other for a position? Hint, hint. You know what's coming. How would this work? How could this work? The message and testimony really underlying chapter 19 is one that we've seen many times before in 1st and 2nd Samuel. It's a message that we sometimes lose track of because the stories and details are just so interesting and sometimes rather bizarre. But since David is a type of the king and Messiah, the Christ. A type is a person or event or a pattern that foreshadows another person, event, or biblical pattern. And David is a type of the coming king and Messiah, the Christ. His kingdom reflects much truth concerning the kingdom of God. And as we consider again the mess and the sin of David and these people, we should be able to clearly see something. This kingdom... Has got to be the kingdom of God, or it would have self destructed a long time ago. Sometimes we miss the biggest point in these passages. And this is the biggest point, really, in the whole redemptive story from beginning to end. This is a major theme of the Old Testament. God preserved a remnant of true believers through every peril, every slaughter, every rebellion, every national event, both encouraging and discouraging. Why? So that His word and promise of a Messiah Savior would come to pass at just the right time. Even the future defeat and captivity of the divided kingdom could not thwart God's redemptive plan in Christ. And if you skip forward a little bit further, even Herod's slaughter of all the male boys in Bethlehem could not get rid of the true Savior and Lord, Jesus. God is powerful. God will complete His plan, and no person, no nation can thwart that. Just in saying that, you you should be thinking of multiple applications to your own personal circumstances. You don't have written in Scripture what God's plan personally is for you, but you can count on the fact that in his sovereign and providential care, he will use every bit of it for his purposes. In chapter 9, verses 9 through 43, we can think of it like this. And I hope this helps. You can think of the first part and the last part, starting at verse 9, 9 through 15 would be the first part here, And verses 40 through 43 is the last part. Think of those as bookends. These two sections describe the discord and the strife. In other words, the mess that's going on in this kingdom. And then think of all the material in between those bookends as books. Several books. Books of different people in the kingdom, of the kingdom's subjects. We meet somebody again named Shimei in verses 16 through 23. And kind of in his shadow, but also there is Ziba. We've met both of them before. And then we finally get to hear Mephibosheth's Account of why he didn't go with David into exile in verses 24 through 30. You might remember that Ziba had given David a half-truth kind of story for the purpose of shedding doubt in David's mind that Mephibosheth wasn't really on David's side. Well, this is going to get straightened out here in this passage today. And then we finally meet up with somebody else again, Barzilla. Well, first let's look at the bookends, the discord and the strife, the mess of this kingdom. I'm going to read verses 9 through 15, and then verses 40 through 43. So if you're able, would you please stand as I read? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now... He has fled out of the land from Absalom, but Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king. You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are 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 you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king, and to bring the king over the Jordan. Then in verses 40 through 43. The king went on to Gilgal, and King Ham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel. Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah. We have ten shares in the king. And in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe may be seated. Well, as you can see, everyone is rather apprehensive. Every man had fled to his own home. We read at the end of verse 8. So what's going to happen to us now? That Absalom is dead. That's the question. All the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel. Boy, that is an understatement. Verse 9. Notice that this anguish and apprehension was especially displayed, especially displayed for a good reason, by those who had been part of anointing Absalom as the king. So the question for these people was really a vexing one. We shouldn't take it lightly. Their question is, should we just go ahead and eat crow and welcome David back? Or should we hang back a little bit and just hope he doesn't take vengeance on us for our treason? Because it was treason. So David sends a message to the elders of Judah through his trusted and implanted or undercover priest who have been in Jerusalem the whole time, Zadok and Abithar. David knows the conflicted nature of these people's position. He knows that something must be done to unite them again. So he appeals to them in three particular ways. So he's exercising... His political gifts. David has a lot of different gifts. Sometimes he uses them wisely, sometimes not. See what you think. Here, first he appeals to their pride. In verse 11, the last half, and the first part of verse 12, he says, Why should you be the last to bring the king back? Remember, these are the elders of Judah. This is his tribe. David has heard all their bickering. He's heard about all their conf- conflicts. He's letting them know that they have a chance to restore their position and get rid of the, we're the ones who followed Absalom. label. Can you imagine that? They didn't have any modern technology at all. But this kind of information was spread faster than anything we could use today. Every little town, Immediately. Those are the marked people. They're the ones who were for Absalom. Let them have it. Treat them like dirt. They're never going to be on an equal par with us. We were loyal. Can you see that argument going on? Within families, against families, town to town, region to region, everywhere. But remember that not all followed Absalom. They just didn't do anything to put themselves in jeopardy. So we've really got three groups. All for David, all for Absalom, and then there's always a whole bunch in the middle. We'll just hang back, try not to say anything, and see what the reaction is and who wins, and then we'll say something, do something. So first he appeals to their pride. Don't be the last. you got a chance. Secondly, he appeals to their relationship very simply. First part of verse 12, what does he say? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Good argument. Thirdly, lastly, he appeals to their anxieties in verse 13. He lets them know Amasa will be made commander of his army. Remember, Amasa was Absalom's army commander. Whoa. Of course, we've never seen anything like that in your life, right? In any country's politics. David's nephew, Amasa. Also, he's a cousin of Absalom, Joab, Abishai. Remember those guys? This is complicated. And this may be a wise political move, and it might remove any thoughts of retribution by David through his ex-commander, now Joab, which these people had to be worrying about. But all we'll we'll see later that it was not a wise executive move. In fact, in the fourth verse of the next chapter. Now, what's the result of all this? The tribe of Judah is back on board. And we read, as one man, David had swayed the heart of all the men of Judah, And when you think about it, it was really pretty fast. But there's the end of this chapter. Look over again at verse 40 and through 43. Now at the end of the chapter, we see all the men of Israel getting bent out of shape. Now remember, the, the kingdom's not divided, but from what you see here, you can see seeds always. Judah was kind of the head honcho tribe forever. In the south, with one other tribe, and the ten northern tribes kind of banded together in various causes, including heresy later, idolatry first and foremost, before even the southern tribe. So when we say Israel, we're talking about the 10, and you notice it says that in the text. They're bent out of shape that Judah had beaten them in the political game of who will welcome David back first after David appealed. So Israel and Judah go back and forth and back and forth over whose position is closest to David. David. Does any of this sound familiar? People whose main goal in life is to buddy up to whoever's in power so they can kind of hope some of it rubs off on them and they'll have some kind of celebrity status amongst their acquaintances. Dale Ralph Davis writes, this fiasco of bringing David back over the Jordan and into Jerusalem was not really the fault of David's politics as much as the reaction of the northern tribes, here termed as Israel, to the manner of his return and of Judah's reaction to Israel's reaction. And anybody that has ever lived in a house with multiple siblings knows what this looks like in a very small form, although the parents may not feel like it's small. This is a whole nation acting like this. So how do we summarize the bookends? How about, welcome back, David, sort of. Now let's look at the middle section, the three books about Shimei, Mephibosheth, and Barzilla. First, let's make sure we remember who Shimei is. Remember that as David was leaving Jerusalem with his tail between his legs, as Absalom had chased him out to go into exile from Absalom, one of the saddest pictures in history, this guy, Shimei, who was a relative of Saul, went along beside David on the side of a hill. What was he doing? He was cursing him out and throwing rocks and dirt at him in chapter 16, verses 5 through 14. And Abishai wanted to go cut the guy's head off. But David had spared Shimei's life. And now look who's back to meet and welcome David. I'll read verses 16 through 23. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, from, from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Hurried. And with him... Were a thousand men from Benjamin and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai the son of Zeruah answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah, that you would this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Got that? There's one person in here who hasn't changed. Bishai. He loves cutting people's heads off that are against David. And he wants a second chance. And here, David magnifies the glory of his position as king. And he does something extraordinarily smart, but also gracious. He doesn't want any more division. And he's doing what he thinks is best in order to make that happen. Now Shimei was doing some heavy politicking here. Perhaps his strongest argument for mercy from David was that he brought a thousand men with him in quite a show of support. This was possibility, the possibility is here that this wasn't just a thousand guys from neighboring towns, it's very possible that this was a military contingent. Then he eats crow, a popular phrase in this chapter of interpretation, he grovels on the ground and he candidly admits that he's wrong. But honestly, folks, what else could he do? He knew he was history if he didn't. He'd bet on the wrong man. There is no real reason to think that Shimei had undergone any massive change of heart. He had committed a tactical error called treason. And now he must try to save his skin. He does not submit to David out of love, but out of strategic policy. He recognizes the realities of the situation. He recognizes the reality of the politics and the power, and he adapts himself accordingly. What would we call him in our terms today? Word has never changed, he's a survivor. Although he was crazy when David left. I mean, it's a miracle the man didn't get his head cut off because Abishai was known to run off and do his own thing. But David prevented him both times from doing so. So David ends all this by sparing Shimei's life again for the second time. For the unifying effect that he hoped it would have, even over the protest of Abishai who still wanted to put him to death. So we could describe Shimei something like this his strategy is motivated out of, can you fill in the blanks? Self interest and self preservation. Now, verses 24 through 30, we finally meet up with Mephibosheth again. Mephibosheth, who was the crippled son of David's dearest friend, Jonathan. Jonathan and his father Saul had died side by side on Mount Gilboa in a war with the Philistines earlier. And even though Jonathan was King Saul's son, He was loyal to his friend David, whom he knew was the Lord's anointed king. Against all odds, this beautiful man stayed true to God's anointed king, David. And he still served his father, Saul, who was trying to kill David. And as we see this demonstrated by Jonathan, especially when Saul was trying to kill David all those years ago. When David assumed his rightful place as the new king, after Saul's death, Mephibosheth could have been a target of David in order to completely wipe out Saul's line. So there would be no subterfuge and threat to David's throne but instead David had sought to show God's faithful love his hesed the covenant love of kindness toward his friend Jonathan's crippled son and he did Mephibosheth was provided for and protected and even invited to share at David's table like one of the king's own sons We read back in chapter 9, verse 11. Interesting. Then when David went into exile, the person assigned to serve and provide for Mephibosheth Mephibosheth, was Ziba, who turned on his own master. And that's what Mephibosheth tells David right now. Let me read verses 24 Through 30, we finally hear this, and Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant, he's talking about himself there, your servant, Mephibosheth, me, among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. you guys see what's going on here? This is some man. Mephibosheth is something special. First we see... Shimei brought a visible argument 1000 northern tribes men possibly a military contingent in verse 17 and then we see Shimei candidly admits his wrong but what else could he do and then Shimei says that he's after all the first of all the northern he's after all the first of the whole northern tribes to come and meet him and then we have Mephibosheth, Just total sincerity. He had let himself go. Can we say that? His disheveled appearance showed that he had forced himself to share in David's exile by the spirit that we see here. And then Ziba, he deceived Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth had called for a donkey to be saddled so he could go with David. But since he was lame, he was crippled, he was dependent on others for all sorts of assistance, which he did not get from Ziba. And in verse 27, Ziba slandered Mephibosheth to the king, we learned to his face. David had only partly redressed his previous unjust decision, which Mephibosheth doesn't even specifically mention. Ziba was supposed to take care of all of Mephibosheth's land, who was the grandson of King Saul. So we're talking lots of territory. And when David had heard from Ziba that Mephibosheth didn't want to go with him, which was a lie. He had given all of Mephibosheth's territory to Ziba. Opposites, again. And that's partly the reason we don't know what happened to Mephibosheth, where he stayed, what he did during David's exile, but obviously he was in bad shape, and he did it on purpose to prove his loyalty to King David. He was in mourning. Well, what does David do? He doesn't make this right. He gives half and half now when he had a chance to execute real justice. And this is sad. Like we saw him in chapter 9, Mephibosheth knew he didn't deserve or merit King David's kindness with no way to repay it, really. He was just grateful back then, and is he still grateful now? He says, let him have the land. It's just, it's, you're back on the throne. That's all that matters. He was grateful. He's sincere. What an exact contrast to Shimei the rock-throwing cusser. And then we see David divides the land. Now, this decision is both, it's understandable that David did it this way, but it's not just. Apparently, he recognizes the truth here of Mephibosheth's explanation, so he knows that he's got to do something to reverse his decision before. But do you see the politicking going going on here? He doesn't want to unnecessarily alienate Ziba, who was a powerful man. is a greedy liar. That's what he is. But he has the possibility of being a helpful greedy liar as far as unity goes. David's trying to win and keep all the support he could as he restores his regime, but what we see here is nothing less than pragmatism rather than justice prevailed. And we know, if you just look at the first verse of verse 20, it's a mess. There's another revolt coming in the next chapter. And he's already experienced betrayal and rebellion by his own sons, so where do you say, I, I'm not going to be pragmatic anymore. I'm going to trust the Lord to do what he wants to do with these people. I'm going to deal justly with Mephibosheth. But he didn't do it. And when he didn't do it, we should notice Mephibosheth's reaction. Do we see here that he took offense? No, he did not take offense. Did he become bitter? No, he did not become bitter. Did he demand what had been his? No, he did not. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, Ziba. Let Ziba take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. What a breath of fresh air in the middle of all the pragmatic politics, so full of Shimiai self-preservation and tactics and zybas. The only good way to describe him is zybaism. All of his zybaisms, which is greed, manipulation, the list is long. It's another code word you can use. Zybaism. Greed. And manipulation. And here's a breath of fresh air. You know, sit back and ask yourself. If you were crippled, the grandson of the king who you knew was not supposed to be king, and your father was the friend of David because your father knew that David had been ordained to be the king by Lord God Almighty, so you were with the Lord King Almighty's choice, not even your grandfather, and you grew up like that, would you be okay? If what you knew was rightfully yours was still not given back to you completely. Not many of us here could say yes. Mephibosheth is free in his heart in a way that not many people even understand. Now, something we may not have noticed in this text... Did you notice in verse 17 and 18a, look at it, that Ziba and Shimei were together at the Jordan to meet and welcome David back? They were together in more ways than one. They belong together. They think alike. Again, the lame Mephibosheth shines the light of the gospel to all of us. He recognized his need, and he was free then to be grateful and sincere, no matter what the circumstances were. In this way, he bowed to his Lord, the King. And if your heart has changed and is being changed by the King of Kings, then you know the heartbeat of Mephibosheth. His example should bring really a tear of joy and gratitude to your eye. This is the mark of those who name the name of Christ. In the world we live in now that's going to get more and more hateful towards those who belong to our Lord, This is the reaction that will say, we are different. And without it, we'll look just like the people who are hating us. Because we'll be just as disgusting in our attitudes back at them as they are to us. Take notice. This is not something new to you. This is not something new to Christians. It has been the mark of believers in the Lord God Almighty since there were believers. And even though Mephibosheth is hard to say, (laughs) keep him in your vocabulary, in your hearts as a man who believed in God, saw God's hand, and was willing to be concerned about his glory, about his honor, He showed that because he was that way towards David, his earthly king. Well, that leaves Barzilla in verses 31 through 39. This is one of the most loyal people also that you'll ever see in the Bible. Remember the three men back in 17, chapter 17, verses 27 through 29. They came out of nowhere east of the Jordan River, to bring David and his followers a host of provisions just when they needed it most as they were skedaddling it out of town in shame from Absalom taking power. Who didn't have to do this? These guys did not have to do this, these three men, because it meant that they were declaring themselves as followers of David loyal to the true king, even if it was at that time, he was at that time in exile, running from Absalom. This was dangerous. They would forever be labeled as the three men who organized a relief mission to the deposed king, except now David's king again. Let me read verses 31 through 39. Barzilla was one of those three, the oldest at 80 years old. Now Barzilla the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzilla was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahaneng, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. Let that sink in for a second. This isn't old age retirement. This is You're going to be in the king's care. Whew. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? There's humor there. Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Kiham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, "Keham shall go over with me and I'll do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over to the Jordan and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzilla and blessed him and returned to his own home. And he returned to his own home. Barzillai had been faithful to the Lord's covenant king. And besides that, what else matters? See that theme running through here? Whatever could one want besides that? A man like that is free, content to go back to his hometown and finish out his days. So the bookends of the strife of the people over David's return surround the updates that we get about these three characters that we met earlier in 2 Samuel. Shimei was, was Ziba, the self-serving, self-preservationist. Mephibosheth, the sincere and still grateful loyal servant of the king. How could Mephibosheth be free to serve the king joyfully and also be free not to demand his rights and be bitter? He was content and he was eager to serve, love, and worship the Lord God Almighty. Are you Then, like icing on the cake, is Barzilla. The aging, loyal servant who exemplified a contentment and freed him up, that freed him up to just go home and finish out his days. These two men's hearts were hungry to know God first and foremost, so much so. That they were free to stand up for their earthly God-ordained king, David. And they put their own earthly desires and dreams in subordination to God's calling upon their own lives. And if we do not do that in our hearts, we are not free. We are enslaved to our desires, our aspirations, our goals. Our 20 year plan, whatever it is, you are not free unless those are in subordination to the Lord God Almighty. And here in the Old Testament, we've got some beautiful examples of that kind of heart. And again, an even bigger picture, we see God's providential blessings. In the midst of all this strife and contention, do we not? He is with His people. He reigns. He rules. No matter what it looks like to us. So have you recognized and acknowledged to God all of His blessings to you this day? no matter what's going on. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what a powerful, powerful passage, a testimony to your faithfulness, your greatness, your majesty, and how you change the hearts of people to see you for who you really are which puts a completely different perspective on our own desires, our own situations and circumstances. Oh, Lord, we are your people. We ask that you would work in us so that you would be first and foremost so that we could live every day in light of who you are and know your peace and contentment as we strive and work. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Paul writes in Romans 15, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so by by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. You're dismissed.